And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? As always, we'd like to take a moment just to welcome the new folks, to say hi, and let you know that we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. We are in John chapter 10, a section that we have keyed in on, uh, calling it the Good Shepherd series, but it comes out of John 10 where Jesus referred to himself as the Good Shepherd. Now, we've already covered uh, these verses, but let's back up to verse 14, get a running start on today's study, where Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must bring also, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, we covered that last week. And let me just say this, just to uh, remind you. Jesus Christ was a radical. And you can't be neutral about a radical. He forces you to take a position. And, of course, with the Lord Jesus, is either you're for him or you're against him. And uh, there was a division back then. There, among the Jewish leaders, the term the Jews means the Jewish leadership. That's how John uh, refers to them. And um, some of them thought he was demon-possessed, crazy man, talking about, I have the power to lay my life down and take it up again. That's crazy talk. Okay. Others said, I don't know, it doesn't sound like crazy talk. I mean... Can a guy with a demon open the eyes of the blind? That goes back to chapter 9, right? So, you know, he was uh, stating, uh, positioning himself in a way that either you're for him or against him. Now, that brings us to verse 22. It says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. There is a gap of time between verses 21 and 22 of about two and a half months we have gone from early October in the Feast of Tabernacles to the middle of December in the Feast of Dedication. At this point in John's Gospel, Jesus, Jesus has roughly four months left before the cross. So we're getting into the home stretch now. The Feast of Dedication. Well, let me just say this about that. The Feast of Dedication was not one of the original seven feasts which God appointed for Israel to observe in Leviticus 23. Those feasts took place from spring through the fall. And, of course, they all pointed to Christ, as everything does in the Old Testament. Psalm 40, verse 7 tells us that. But uh, the first three spring feasts were Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Of course, they spoke of Jesus Christ's first coming, the things he has already accomplished. The last three feasts in the fall, trumpets, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles, speak of his second coming, the work he has yet to accomplish and then right in the middle, late spring, early summer, was the Feast of Pentecost, which signifies the time between the first and second coming of Christ or the church age. Of course, the church was born on the very Feast of Day of Pentecost, all right? 
The Feast of Dedication came much later in Israel's history than the seven feasts of Moses. It really had its beginning in what the theologians call the intertestamental period. In other words, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Now, this feast revolved around one particular piece of furniture that stood in the holy place of the temple, a piece of furniture known as the menorah. When a Jewish priest went into the holy place of the temple, the temple proper, the building, was divided into two compartments. You had the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. When a Jewish priest went into the holy place of the temple, he saw three pieces of furniture that God had commanded be made for this first compartment of the temple, the temple proper. Directly in front of him, as he walked in, he would see the golden altar of incense where the priest would burn incense. It sat right outside the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. If he looked to his right, he would see a small golden table called the table of showbread. Every week, 12 new loaves of bread were baked according to a certain recipe and laid out on the, t- out on the table of showbread, one loaf for each tribe. At the end of the week, the priests were able to then take them home, consume them as the new loaves were put out. And then to his left, if you were to look to his left, would uh, be the golden lampstand known as the menorah. That's the piece of furniture we want to focus in on, all right? The menorah was a seven-branched oil-burning lamp containing a center stem, and then extending from it were three branches on either side for a total of seven branches in all. At the top of each branch was a golden bowl containing a wick, and the bowl was then filled with the finest olive oil uh, to alight the menorah. Now, God had commanded that once the menorah was lit, it was to remain lit and never go out. It became one of the priest's duties to make sure that each bowl of the menorah was filled with oil every day, that the wicks were trimmed so the light would always be burning. Now, guys, that becomes the background for an event that happened roughly 160 years before Jesus was born, an event which impacted the history of the nation in a very profound way and gave rise to a new feast called the Feast of Dedication. Let me give you the background, the historical background, so you know what I'm talking about. In the years 174 to 164 B.C., a Syrian king conquered and ruled over the land of Israel, whose name was Antiochus IV. He also, or he took to himself, the title Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God. He was a humble man and all. And uh, we know him from history as Antiochus Epiphanes. That's, most Christians have heard that name. Antiochus, the manifest God, is what that means. Of course, the Jews, of course, they didn't say it to his face, but they came up with a, a nickname for him. Instead of calling him Epiphanes, the manifest God, they called him Epimenes, which means the madman or the insane one. Okay. You wouldn't want to say it to his face because he was pretty out there. All right? you, you can read about how he persecuted the Jewish people in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees, which records the period of history of the, around this time and how this uh, Syrian uh, leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, persecuted the Jewish people unmercifully, unmercifully. He slaughtered thousands of Jewish men, sold many of their wives and children into slavery, and had tried to completely obliterate the Jewish faith. 
he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig, the most unclean of all animals, on the, the altar of sacrifice, and then made the Jewish priest eat the flesh. Then he set up in the Holy of Holies of the temple an idol to Zeus, the pagan deity he fancied himself as manifesting, and that horrific abomination set up in the holiest place of the temple, the place where only the God of Israel was to occupy, completely, completely desecrated the temple, rendering it useless for the worship of God. It was this abomination of desolation, as referred to in Scripture, which became the catalyst for a Jewish revolt led by a very godly old Jewish priest named Mattathias and his five sons. This revolt began in 167 B.C. When Mattathias died a year or so later, his son Judah, also known as Judas Maccabee, Maccabee is the Hebrew word for hammer. He was called Judas the Hammer. Tough guy. He took the helm of the revolt, and the revolt eventually took on his name. It became known as the Maccabean Revolt. Within two years, exactly three years total from the time the temple had been desecrated, the Jews had successfully driven the Syrians out of Jerusalem, relying largely on guerrilla tactics and warfare. That way, guerrilla warfare tactics, all right? After cleansing the temple of pagan defilement, they went to rededicate it by lighting the menorah lampstand. But to their dismay, they discovered there was only enough consecrated oil to keep the menorah burning for one day. It would take a week to consecrate more. By faith, they lit it anyway on the 25th day of Kislev, which corresponds to our late November, early December, in the year 164. Miraculously, the light burned for eight days. This began a new Jewish holiday known as the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, which means dedication. And that's why it's sometimes called the Feast of Dedication, where you see it there in verse 22. All right, so we've said earlier that at this point in John's gospel, we're about four months from the cross. And as such, the hatred on the part of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus is reaching a fever pitch. Verse 22, once again, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple. This would be the temple precincts, not the temple building. The temple precincts walking in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews, again, the Jewish leadership, surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Solomon's porch was a covered area. Remember we talked about this last week how that uh, the temple precinct, uh, the area surrounding the building, the temple proper, was about 35 to 40 acres, a large area. And uh, all around the uh, area, there were, uh, there were uh, uh, walkways uh, that were covered. Solomon's porch was one of those. And the rabbis would typically uh, you know, be walking there with their disciples. They would stop, and he would teach. It was, just a, it was covered, keep them out of the sun or the rain, that kind of thing. It was a common a place for uh, rabbis to go and, and to teach their disciples. And so here we see, as we have talked about earlier in chapter 10, here we see Jesus, the good shepherd, the good shepherd, walking there with his sheep, his disciples. And there he was surrounded by the religious leaders of Israel, whom he had earlier called hirelings, those who didn't really care about the sheep. They only cared about the money, the prestige, and power they got from the job. 
When it says that they surrounded him, it's a very strong word in the Greek. It means to close in on him, to box him in. They were determined to force a confrontation. You know, and, and the idea was that uh, their contempt, their hatred had been simmering for a long time. Now it's reaching a boiling point. It's about ready to explode, actually, and will in four months when they uh, call for his death. They crucify him or had Rome do it, but they, they, they pushed Pilate to do what he didn't really want to do. He thought Jesus was innocent. We'll get there. But um, the contempt that these Jewish leaders had for Jesus at this point now has uh, reached a murderous hatred. It's like a bunch of jackals. They now surround the Lord and challenge him by saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. No more fooling around. No more playing games. You know, come on. We, we want you to come out with it. If you're really the Messiah, tell us plainly. The Greek verb translated plainly could be translated publicly or openly. Now, it was true that Jesus hadn't actually gone around declaring publicly that he was the Messiah. It wasn't because he didn't want people to know he was the Messiah of Israel, uh, that he didn't proclaim it publicly. And let me say this, it's not that he never said anything to anyone that he was the Messiah. He did do that. What I'm saying is, and what they're challenging him is, why haven't you gone around, well, like we would say, somebody running for political office? Everywhere they go, they're on the campaign trail, uh, you know, and they're declaring the office they want to uh, hold, you know, vote for me, for whatever. They're saying, well, if you're Messiah, why haven't you been canvassing everywhere, declaring your Messiah, come vote for me, in a sense? It wasn't like that. Jesus Christ wasn't like a politician out in the campaign trail. doesn't mean he never said he was Messiah to people. He did. In fact, he tells these very guys, I've already told you I'm the Messiah. Remember, look at verse, uh, the beginning of verse 25. He's already told them that, uh, that he was Messiah and all. And um, let me just revisit this. The why, why didn't he, I mean, publicly, begin to declare very openly, and everywhere he went, he was Messiah. Because he knew if he went around publicly proclaiming himself as Messiah, it would have encouraged a revolt against the Roman government that would have resulted in the slaughter, listen, of thousands and thousands of Jews who were looking for Messiah to come to lead them in a revolt against Rome. They believed in the time when they were just little kids, they were taught, when Messiah comes, he is going to lead us in a revolt against our oppressors at that time, Rome. And he's going to establish the kingdom. We're going to enter into a glorious new age where Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. The Jewish people will be his prime ministers and leaders around the world. It's going to be a glorious time. He'll heal all sickness. He'll feed hungry. He'll heal the, the, the lame and so on. And so they, if Jesus went out publicly declaring himself to be Messiah, it would have no doubt started a political revolution. People would have gathered all over the place. And, and that's not what he wanted. He didn't come the first time to lead a political revolution. The first time he came wasn't political but personal. It wasn't about his reigning over a political outward kingdom, but over an inward personal kingdom where he would take or he would where he would rule over the lives of individuals who would receive him into their hearts as king over their lives. Now it's true and we all know this when he comes the second time, he will come to bring an outward political kingdom at his second coming. 
But for now, first coming, first things first. But listen, it wasn't that Jesus hadn't ever declared that he was the Christ to these guys. As I just said, beginning of verse 25, he said, I told you, and you don't believe me. I've already told you I'm the Messiah. You know what I've said, what I've declared. The reason they didn't believe him, these Jewish leaders, primarily was because Jesus wasn't acting like their concept of how Messiah was going to act when he showed up. Again, they expected him to begin to to gather an army uh, and to lead them in a revolt against Rome, uh, lead them in battle against their enemies. But Jesus had been going around telling them to love their enemies. He can't be the Messiah. Messiah wouldn't tell us to love our enemies. He'd be organizing an army to fight against our enemies. And by the way, this is why a lot of people don't follow Jesus to this day. Because he doesn't act the way they think he should act to warrant their following him. What do I mean? Well, it's a lot of people that won't follow Christ, won't be a Christian, because something happened in their life that was devastating. Maybe they lost somebody very dear to them. Uh, They cried out to God because their wife was sick or a child, and the child or the spouse died anyways. And so now, because Jesus didn't come through, because he didn't act the way they thought he should act in that situation, now they're right out, he can't be God. Christianity can't be true. Because if God was real, he would never have allowed uh, my loved one to die or whatever it might be. And because the Lord doesn't act the way they think he should act, often people write him off. I've seen it all the time in 40 years of ministry. And so he purposely had not declared himself as Messiah publicly. Not in so many words. But he goes on to say he did declare his Messiahship often in many other ways. He went on to say in verse 45 to these leaders, the works that I do in my Father's name, listen, they bear witness of me. They, they proclaim who I am. What is he talking about? Well, first of all, let me take you... back to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus and began his public ministry six months before Jesus did. During that time, uh, John was in the wilderness mostly, and people were coming to him, and his message was a simple one. Messiah's coming. Get your hearts right. Prepare your hearts. Messiah's coming, okay? So again, it wasn't wasn't like nobody ever heard that Jesus was Messiah. At one point, Herod has John arrested. And he's thrown into a prison, a prison down near the Dead Sea. Now, for a guy that's lived all his life out in the open, you know, sleeping under the stars and so on, that was torture for John. In fact, from what I understand, that very prison, which they know where it was, has only got one window with bars on it high enough up where you have to jump up to grab the bars and pull yourself up. And they, they have found uh, fingernail marks from people that are just trying to get a little glimpse of the outside. So at one point, John is very discouraged because he's like, well, when is he going to lead us in a battle against Rome? I shouldn't be in this prison. I mean, we should be fighting the Romans by now, we, maybe even enjoying the kingdom. What's he doing? At one point, John gets so confused and so discouraged, he asks for a couple of his disciples to come visit him and tells them, you go ask Jesus if he is really the Messiah, or should we be looking for another? And so that's what they did. You can read about this in Luke 9, verses 20, uh, 19 to 20, excuse me, for Luke 7, 
verses 19 to 23. And so they go to Jesus from John, and they said, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And verse 21 says, In that very hour, Jesus cured many of afflictions, infirmities, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to John's disciples, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What is Jesus doing? He is pointing to the very miracles that God spoke through Isaiah and the other prophets that Messiah would do when he came on the scene. Miracles that they were to look for that would indicate this man is in fact the Messiah. Jesus said, John, what does the scripture say? You know the word. The, the scriptures say that when Messiah comes, he will cause the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak. He will raise the dead. These are things I'm doing. Don't be offended because I'm not doing it your way or on your timetable. You know I am who I claim to be. So he was pointing to the works, the miracles that he had done, which were a prophetic fulfillment of those Messiah would do, spoken way back in the Old Testament time. John 10, verse 26. Jesus said to these men who didn't believe, they refused to believe. He said, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you, he said he told them that in chapter 8. Now let me just stop here and say this. As most of you already know, I'm not a Calvinist. I have nothing against Calvinists. Some of my favorite authors are Calvinists. Some people very close to me are Calvinists. I'm not, I, I don't have a thing against Calvinism or Calvinists. I, I have a thing against Calvinism, but not Calvinists, all right? Um, I'm not a Calvinist. I am not one who believes that the reason these leaders did not believe is because they, listened, could not believe. And why could they not believe? Because they hadn't been elected by God for salvation. They hadn't been elected by God to be Jesus' sheep. And so without God, listen, regenerating them and giving them the faith to believe, well, it was impossible for them to believe. That's what Calvinism teaches that we are so dead in trespasses and sins we have to be regenerated before God can even give us the faith to believe. Um, and then those who are elect receive that faith and they eventually receive Christ. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I, I, I believe that these men were not Jesus' sheep, not because God had reprobated them to hell in eternity past without having any opportunity or chance to be saved, See, that's, that's not my God. That's not the God of the Bible. As I see him, who loved the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, Jesus said. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I believe these men didn't believe because they chose not to believe. They hardened their own hearts. God didn't harden their hearts in the beginning. He may have down the road 
after they had chosen not to believe in Christ and hardened their hearts, hardened their hearts, hardened their hearts. You know, it does say in John 12, we'll get to it, uh, they, first of all, it says of these leaders, they did not believe. And later on, it says of them, now they could not believe. If a person keeps hardening their heart, hardening their heart to Christ, every time they do, it gets a little harder, then a little harder. Finally, they pass the point of spiritual no return where they can't believe their heart is so hard. But this is not something God wants. God's hands are extended to the people of the whole world saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Do you thirst? Water, drink from the water. Come, come and drink the water of life freely. It's, it's available to anybody. These guys hardened their hearts, and that's why they now did not believe. Verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Let me just stop there. As I said a few weeks ago in John 10, Jesus ties eternal life to a person making him their shepherd. The question is, I'm sure many people would ask at this point, how do I know if I've made Jesus my shepherd? Very simply, a shepherd is one who leads the sheep. And listen, the sheep follow their shepherd. He made that point very clear early in chapter 10. So the question I have for you this morning, are you following Jesus? Now listen, I always have to give a caveat when I say something like that because none of us are going to follow Jesus perfectly all the time. All right? I mean, this side of glory, we're not going to be perfect in our obedience to Jesus. But I know how I was before I got saved and how I am now. I know that now I really want to do the Lord's will. If you love me, keep my commandments. I do love the Lord, and I do want to keep his commandments. I want to please his heart. Do I always do it? No, but I'm on good ground because Paul the Apostle said the things I want to do, I don't always do. And what I don't want to do, sometimes I do. And this is the struggle we're going to have until the trumpet sounds, the angel shouts, and God says, come up here. And on the way up, I'm going to get a new body, jettison this body of death, and then I'm going to be as perfect outwardly as I am through Christ inwardly. Until then, we struggle, right? We struggle. But are you following Jesus, you know, in general, overall? Because a lot of folks that say they believe in Jesus but are not living for him at all. And it doesn't even bother them because in their minds, with their head, I believe in Jesus. I'm good. Well, that's not what he said. But anyways, again, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them, what? Life for a decade. Oh, I know, life for a century. Oh, eternal life, right? And they shall never, what? Perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Let me stop there. At this point, there's always a dear Christian who has gone to a legalistic church that will say at this point, yes, Jesus gives us eternal life, but I have to be faithful or else I lose it. Jesus anticipated that response, and so directly after saying that, I give them eternal life, he went on to say, and they shall never perish. In the Greek, that is in the middle voice. The middle voice is reflexive. You could translate it, and they shall never do anything to cause themselves to perish. Hang on to that thought. And then he further adds, Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Guys, listen to me. 
Our faithfulness to hold on to Jesus isn't the issue. The issue is his faithfulness to hold on to us. Don't miss that. We're studying Jude on Wednesday night, Jude verse 24. Now unto him who is able to keep us, now unto him who is able to keep us from falling. And the context suggests falling out of Christ and being lost. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless, blameless, perfect before his presence with exceeding joy. What the Lord starts, he always does what? Finishes. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Guys, eternal life is given the moment a person believes in and receives Jesus as their Savior. John 1, verse 12, very clearly points that out. Eternal life is given the moment a person believes in and receives Jesus as their Savior. And listen to me, starting from that moment on, as Jesus taught right here, you will never perish. And that's because God has you in his hands and is holding you tightly, and might I add, eternally, he is holding you in his hands as a Christian. And again, some Christians would respond, but I still think I can slip through his fingers. Okay, he's holding me, but I, I still think I can slip through his fingers and be lost if I'm not faithful to live a holy life. I'm not advocating you not live a holy life. Okay, I'm just saying. As a wonderful man of God who's with the Lord right now, Donald Gray Barnhouse once famously said to a person who basically posed that, that statement to him, okay, he's got me in his head, but I think I can slip through his fingers and be lost if I'm not faithful. And Barnhouse famously said, you can't slip through his fingers because you are one of his fingers. You are a member of his body. Listen to the Amplified Bible translates verse 28. And I give them eternal life and they shall never lose and they shall never lose it or perish throughout the ages to all eternity they shall never by any means be destroyed and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand now to get the idea from the greek and i'm not a, you know I, I know a little greek uh, i, I want to read to you what one greek scholar now he does know greek what he said about this verse I don't know a lot of it, and you're not going to know a lot of it, but just listen to what, how he phrases this. He said, and I quote, The Greek is an emphatic double negative with second aorist middle and subjunction of apolumi, the word for to destroy, which is the strongest Greek instruction possible. What is he saying? He is saying Jesus could not have worded this any stronger in the Greek to, to get across the point once you are my sheep, once you belong to me, you will never, ever, no way do anything to cause yourself to perish. As somebody said, backslide you may, perish you won't. Chastise you he may, disown you he won't. Listen, guys, eternal life by its very definition has to mean uninterrupted life that goes on for eternity from the moment it is received. That's God's promise to us based, listen, on his faithfulness, not on our faithfulness. And that is the great difference between the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Christ. The new covenant is built on better 
promises, we are told. The Old Covenant was a bilateral. There's two kinds of covenants in the Bible. A bilateral covenant and a unilateral covenant. Bilateral means two-party. A two-party contract or promise, okay? Where two people enter into this covenant and they both have terms to fulfill. If they both do their part, then the covenant is brought to its fruition, okay, to its conclusion, all right? If one person doesn't hold up their end of the covenant, the whole thing is, is nullified, rendered null and void, okay? So the old covenant was a bilateral or a two-party covenant. Moses on top of Mount Sinai represented the nation of Israel. There was God, there was Moses, and they entered into this covenant with each other where God promised if Israel was faithful to keep the terms of the covenant, think Ten Commandments, it was bigger than that, of course. If Israel was faithful to keep the terms of the covenant, then God would do his part and bless them with prosperity and material blessings. If Israel was not faithful to keep the law, then God would not bless them. It was a two-party covenant. Well, as Moses is up on top of the mountain getting the terms of the covenant, because remember when God brought him out of Egypt, led him to the base of Mount Sinai and proposed a covenant with them. Do you guys want to be my people? All right? Uh, if you want to be my people, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And if you do these things, I'll bless you abundantly. Okay? Uh, what do, you, do you want to be my people or, or no? We want to be your people. That sounds great. We, we want to be your people, God. All right, Moses, come up on top of the mountain. I'll give you the terms of the covenant. Moses is up on top of the mountain. He was up there a while. And before he even comes down, the people have already broken the covenant. They're worshiping the golden calf, right? He hasn't even gotten down from the mountain yet. That's how faithful we are. That's how faithful we are. Any covenant of salvation where man has a part in it to do anything is doomed to failure. Because we are not perfect, we are not faithful, we are prone to failure. Years ago, there was a restaurant in our town that had a nautical theme. It was a pizza joint. We used to go there once in a while and get pizza and stuff. And um, when you walked up to this place, okay, because it had a nautical theme, they had a gigantic anchor right there in front with a massive chain connected to it. This thing must have been for some kind of a battle cruiser. I don't know. It was gigantic. And I'm trying to remember, I think the links, each of the links in diameter were about one and a half to two inches thick. And it was massive. And when I first taught on this subject, the Lord laid that, that chain on my heart with the idea that a chain is only as strong as its what? Weakest link. Say that you were to unhook one link from another, massive links, right? And in its place, you, you put one strand of human hair becomes a link now. How strong would that chain be? Absolutely weak. Because again, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Think about salvation in those terms. It matters not how strong or faithful God is in keeping his promise to give us eternal life. If we have a part to play in securing our salvation in any way, shape, or form, we are the weakest link, and the whole thing is doomed to fail. In Hebrews chapter 6.19, we read, This hope of eternal life is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Talking about God's faithfulness to hold on to us, it's both sure and steadfast. 
It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. It leads us all the way to heaven, into his presence. Guys, the whole idea of the new covenant was to listen now. Take the human link out of the chain that makes, excuse me, the whole idea behind the new covenant was to take the human link out of the chain and make salvation entirely dependent upon God's power and his faithfulness. Remember how that God had promised them in the, in the face of all their failures in not being able to keep his law. Remember what God said to the prophet Jeremiah centuries earlier, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. There's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I brought you out of Egypt, uh, the covenant which you broke. <laughs> yeah, pretty quick. I'm going to take my laws and write them in their hearts. I'm going to make a brand new covenant, which we know would be in the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who once we receive him, the Holy Spirit moves inside, gives us a new nature, a new heart, and now we love God and obey God because of our heart toward him. Not outward laws that, that scare us and condemn us, but we obey from the heart. God's chain is so strong because we're not involved in it. We're not a link anymore. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, we talked about what some theologians have called the golden chain of salvation. You don't have to turn to it. It comes out of Romans 8. I'll read it to you. Of course, Paul was talking about how God saves us and how he eventually will glorify us. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 29... Paul said, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, listen, these he also glorified. Every link or every truth in that chain relates to God and his faithfulness to keep his promise to us. We're not anywhere. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, he, 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 he. We're nowhere in that chain, thank God. Our faithfulness isn't a link found anywhere. This is a promise that is unilateral and unconditional. A promise that deals with the faithfulness of God alone. And doesn't include our faithfulness to do anything, like go to church, keep commandments, light candles, pray rosaries, keep sacraments. That's why we are told in the book of Hebrews that the new covenant through Jesus is superior to the old covenant under Moses. I'll read you a couple of scriptures from Hebrews. Uh, chapter 8, verse 6, first of all. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry as high priest over the new covenant, Jesus, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Old covenant, I promise to bless you if you obey me. New covenant, I'm going to bless you with everything I've got up front. Believe in my son. Can't get any better than that. We don't have to do anything. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope 
without wavering, listen, for he who promised is faithful. It's, it's a unilateral covenant is a promise that somebody makes to you that you don't have to do anything to receive the benefits of. Think of a will, because actually the writer of the Hebrews uses the will as an example. A will is typically, I'm not a lawyer, but typically is a unilateral covenant where somebody says, when I die, I promise to give you something, whatever it might be. Now, when that person dies, they call you in for a reading of the will. They read it to you. Here's what your uncle Job uh, promised he was going to give you upon his death. And so we want you to just, here it is, we want you to receive it. It's yours. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. Jesus made us a promise. In fact, the Bible says in Titus 1 verse 2, God made himself a promise before, the, before time began. Were we there before time began? No. So how can it be a, a bilateral, two-party covenant? Can't be. It's a one-party promise. God promised himself that all who believe in my son will have everlasting life. By its very definition, once received, it's life for eternity. Look, don't get me wrong as we close. Don't get me wrong. The Bible encourages sincere self-examination to make sure we're really in the faith. 2 Peter 1.10, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. That's important. I don't believe a Christian ever loses their salvation. What I, what I uh, believe is a lot of people who go to church and call themselves Christians never had it. Be diligent to examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will come to me on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord. And we went to church. We cast out demons and prophesied and all this. Why aren't we going to heaven? Because I never knew you. You didn't belong to me. You practiced lawlessness. But again, two kinds of promises in the Bible, conditional and unconditional. Guys, all of the promises in Scripture that relate to eternal life are all, listen, unconditional, unilateral promises. In other words, they don't depend on our faithfulness to do anything. And again, I'm not advocating you not being faithful. I just don't want you to give the devil place to condemn you because you're listening to people who are telling you if you don't there are some churches where people are getting saved every week because they're hammering on this holy life of however they define it in some churches it's you know girls uh, you can't wear uh, short skirts or guys uh, long hair you can't go to the movies you can't go to a dance that that and of course they've got all kinds of different rules if you violate any one of those you lose your salvation got to come back and get saved again. Perfect peace casts out what? Fear. How, how is that theology cast out? Any, I'm living in a constant state of terror that I'm going to mess up, lose my salvation, not be able to make it back to church quick enough to get saved again. The new covenant is all about Jesus' faithfulness to hang on to us. God's faithfulness in making himself a promise that all who believe in Jesus would have everlasting life. It only depends on the faithfulness of one person. Thank God it's not me. It's God Almighty. Which means all of these promises uh, regarding salvation are all unconditional, unilateral promises. And so, guys, God 
made us who are his children a promise. A promise that if you are a child of God, you will never be disowned, you will never be thrown out of the family, and you will never perish in hell. Turn to John 6 real quick. As we study this, we studied chapter 6, but let me just revisit it quickly as we bring this to a close. Jesus is talking about the uh, eternal security of the believer in Christ. And he said in verse 37, John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Anyone who comes to Christ for salvation, he never says, well, let me check the list. Oh, sorry, you're not on the list. Can't, you, you know, you're not one of the elect. Sorry, can't help you. No, all who come to me will by no means be cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, what? I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing. They've been given to me by my Father for safekeeping. And I won't lose any. But should raise, what? It up at the last day. Now he does go on to say him, raise him up. But here he says, but I will raise it up on the last day. What is the it? The church. The body of Christ. He sees us as a unit. We want to make ourselves individual to the point where if I mess up, he peels me off the body and I'm cast into hell. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, all who come to me, all constitute my church, my body. And I'm going to raise it up, the whole group. Either we all get to heaven as Christians or none of us get there. One author summed it up this way. We'll close. He said the security of God's sheep is assured here in several ways. First, by definition, we have eternal life. Eternal life. And that cannot be conditional and still be eternal. Second, this life is a gift, not something that we earn or merit. If we were not saved by our own good works but by His grace, then we cannot be lost by our bad works. Check out Romans 11, verse 6. Third, and most importantly... Jesus gave us his promise that his sheep do not perish and that his promise cannot be broken. The author concludes, it is important to keep in mind that Jesus was talking about sheep, uh, believers, true believers, and not counterfeits. The dog and the pig that Peter mentions in 2 Peter 2, which are unbelievers who, you know, think they're saved, act like Christians for a while, and then go back to the old life because that's all they really know. The dog and pig go back into sin, but the sheep, being a clean animal, will follow the shepherd into the green pastures of heaven. Absolutely, end quote. So don't let the devil condemn you. In fact, this knowledge that our salvation is absolutely secure and eternal frees us to live for God out of love. It casts out fear because my good works didn't save me, my bad works don't keep me out of heaven, 
but because I love him so much and because he loves me so much, because, of, you know, I want to please his heart. I want to live for him. It helps us to be more obedient, not less obedient. Now, next week, guys, we're going to get into a section before we leave John 10 that I really feel we need to spend a little time. I don't know if we're going to spend the whole, uh, uh, the whole time on it. But it's a section where, well, it's a, it's a section that the Mormons have keyed in on, made it one of their central doctrines or tenets of the Mormon faith, that you can become a god. And we know that because Jesus told us we were gods. But did he? Come on back, we'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that as we study your word, you make clear um, your will. And we know, Lord, it's your will that once we receive Jesus, we will never, ever perish in hell. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.